We are continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the last section, so there is hope that we will finish sometime this year. Uh, this sermon, Matthew 7, page 1032, if you're using a Bible provided. And uh, we continue on. In this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven and also what will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. So there are things that are necessary for entrance to the kingdom of heaven, and there are things that will preclude you from going into the kingdom of heaven. So it is vital. This is, this is eternal life and eternal death. Nothing more important for us to talk about today than what it takes. Last week in Matthew 7, uh, verses 12 and 13, or verses 13 and 14, we saw two different gates that open to two different ways that lead to two different destinations, life and death. And uh, we will continue talking about what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, this morning. Before we do, let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to see, to see your word clearly, to understand it as you have revealed it, as you give it, have given it to us. We can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit uh, to open our hearts and our eyes, to keep us awake to keep us interested, to listen, to learn. And, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to speak through this poor preacher to get your message across despite his imperfections. And so, Lord, we are dependent upon you this morning. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Follow along as I read. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." This is God's revelation to us. Listen to it this morning. Our theme for our passage is this. King Jesus has the authority to tell his disciples what is necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven. He has the authority. Jesus has the authority. Ask King to tell his disciples what is necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven. I like how Legan Duncan says it. He says this, Jesus didn't simply want people to stand around and admire the beautiful vision of the Christian life that he had sketched for them in this sermon. He didn't want them to say, what an exalted teacher Jesus is. He is a better teacher than any of the Pharisees that I have ever heard preach. He didn't want them to stand on the sidelines. He wanted them to participate in the life and in the blessings of the kingdom. And so he sends out an urgent call to enter the kingdom. That's what he did in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter into what? Verse 21. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. So do not come to this, this great sermon of Jesus Christ called the Sermon on the Mount and just admire it for its beauty. Admire it for its morality. Admire it for all the wonderful principles that help people live better lives. That's not the point. The point is to show you what the kingdom is, to call you to enter that kingdom, to tell you how you can be in it and what it looks like when you are in it. It's all about the kingdom of God. And once you tell people, verses 13 and 14, what they must do to enter the kingdom of heaven, 
you also must warn them of those who would seek to keep them out of the kingdom of heaven. There are two gates and two ways that lead to two extremely, absolutely contradictory destinations. And so Jesus is calling us to enter in by the narrow gate, enter into the kingdom of heaven, and yet there are those who intentionally are out to keep you from doing that. And that's what Jesus warns us about in our passage this morning. And so Jesus says this, tells us to beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. I got that right out of the scripture where Jesus says in verse 15, beware of false prophets. It is amazing how you can come up with an outline uh, and, and so just dig into and bring something out that no one has ever seen before. Well, what does this mean, beware of false prophets? First of all, it's a warning. There's a warning. Watch out. Watch out for false teachers who claim to be pointing you to the narrow gate, who claim to teach you about the hard way, but actually point you to the wide gate and encourage you on the easy way. False prophets are dangerous because if you follow them, you will end up in destruction. The wide gate and the easy way leads to destruction, and false prophets will lead you there. So the first question I have for you this morning is, how concerned are you about false prophets? How much do you think about Christ's warning sign, beware of false prophets? I guess it would probably match up how worried you are when you go to someone's house and on the front fence gate it says, beware of dog. Some of you, when you see that, become very afraid. Very nervous, you might not enter. Others are like, I don't see any dog. Probably it's a little dog, and I got no problem, I can handle dogs, and in you go, no problem. The, the warning sign, the beware sign, has no effect on some of us, and others of us, it, it really stops us in our tracks. How much does Christ's warning sign, beware of false prophets, what kind of effect does that have on you? You know, how big's the dog? How mean is the dog? How much have I been watching the dog whisperer on TV and I know how to handle these vicious animals? I don't know. How much does the, the sign have on you? So the question for us is how big of a problem are false prophets? Now, false prophets could also be seen in the New Testament called false teachers most of the time. But how big of a problem are, they, are, are false teachers, false prophets today in Christianity? Are there a lot of false prophets? A few false prophets, or I've never seen a false prophet. That would, your, your, uh, your understanding of how many there are or how dangerous they are will lead you to handle this warning differently. So now I ask the question, when was the last time you questioned what you read on a Christian blog or a Christian website? What you heard in a Christian church, what you heard from a Christian pastor, what you heard in a song from a Christian music group? Do you, heeding this warning, listen and read with care and concern on alert for false prophet, prophets, false teachers, false teaching? Or have you the mindset that, man, anybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian, and everyone who's a Christian pastor in a Christian church must be telling the truth. Everything is equal. Every, no, there's no worries, no problems. There are at least 11 explicit warnings in the New Testament about false prophets, false teachers. 
It is such an important theme that one of our oldest Christian books on Christian living, called the Didache, is, has most of its writing about how to see and recognize and deal with false prophets, false teachers. This is a serious warning. It's a serious problem. And because of the danger, we are told here to examine carefully. The warning is to watch out. And because of the great danger of false prophets, we are to examine prophets carefully. Notice what it says. Beware of false prophets. Why do we examine them carefully? Because they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These false prophets do not come to you in wolf's clothing. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, I've read this many, many times, as, as many of you have, and I always thought that it was like wolves dressed in a sheep's costume. <laughs> it reminded me of a Looney Tunes cartoon back in the day. Some of, some of you have no idea what Looney Tunes are. If you're you know, under 30, you probably have no idea, but some of us, you know, the, the, the wolf in the sheep's clothing, and that's exactly what came to mind. But I really, I really like what John MacArthur said, and I want to explain that. I think it's, it's most, more helpful. He said this, shepherds invariably wore woolen clothing made from the wool of sheep they tended. That is the sheep's clothing of which Jesus here speaks. False prophets do not deceive the flock by impersonating sheep, but by impersonating shepherds who wear sheep's clothing in the form of his wool garments. No, it's, very, it's really interesting here. It doesn't say, beware of false prophets who come to you as sheep. It says, come to you dressed in sheep's clothing. And that's what shepherds wore because shepherds were extremely poor and all they had right in front of them were sheep. So if a sheep dies or you have to kill a sheep for some reason, uh, maybe you had to eat a sheep, you would use that very same sheep and make that clothing into your wool clothing. makes a lot of sense. And these false prophets who are actually wolves come dressed in sheep's clothing, which is what a shepherd would wear. These false prophets are impersonating not sheep, but impersonating shepherds. They're personating those who are supposed to feed and care and protect the flock. And they don't wear a sign that says false prophet. Have you ever heard anyone come up and say, by the way, I'm a false prophet. Just to let you know right up front, I'm going to give you some false teaching today. You know, you might want to take that into consideration before you listen. No, we don't do that. What do false prophets wear? They wear a sign that says Christian pastor. They preach and teach in Christian churches. They have Christian websites. They claim to be the opposite of what they actually are. They come dressed, they come deceiving in these clothing, but this is not what they are. They're, they, they are signifying a false statement about their true, true identity. And we must not be gullible. We must not be naive to the danger. We must examine carefully. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for such men are false apostles. Another a phrase of the same kind they're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This, again, is a repeated theme throughout almost every book of the New Testament. Even some of the smallest books, Jude and uh, Third John, will warn of the false teachers, the false prophets, the false apostles. And the reason the warning is so important is because the danger is so great. These wolves are ravenous. Have, has anybody ever had a wolf, owned a wolf? You know you can, you can have a wolf. Has anybody ever petted a wolf? A few, a few people. 
was on a trip out in Colorado staying at someone's house. Long story. I won't give you all the details. Um, but the person I was staying with, they had out in a pen, they had a, a half wolf, wolf that they had, uh, a wolf had been bred with a dog. And uh, so you want to go see the wolf? Sure. That'd be, that's interesting. I've never seen a wolf before in person. I mean, talk about the zoo. I mean, zoo, zoo wolves are different. They're very nice and kind. Uh, but uh, you go up to this wolf, and the reason you, the way you could absolutely tell that it wasn't a dog, it kind of looked like a big husky kind of thing, idea like that, is its eyes. Wolves' eyes are, are like cat eyes. They're, they're made for the dark, made for those different, very different eyes than a dog has. And uh, that's, and he said, well, you know, you can pet it, but you might want to be a little careful. So we keep it out here. I said, I'm good. I think that was the same guy who had bow hunt and had killed a mountain lion and had it mounted on his uh, stairs in his house. So as you walk up the stairs and you turn, all, about four steps up was this full-grown mountain lion mounted on the wall. Anyway, and that's a story for a different time. Uh, Colorado's a neat place full of all kinds of crazy things. But uh, these wolves are ravenous. They're not pets. A ravenous wolf is hungry. And when a wolf is hungry, you don't want to pet it. You don't want to be near it because it's going to do something deadly, right? It's going to kill and eat you. That's what a wolf is designed to do. And so these these false prophets are consciously seeking to deceive so that they can enter into the sheepfold, fool the sheep to come in to destroy the sheep. Now, what's amazing about these false prophets is that they are consciously putting on an act. They are not self-deceived or self-deluded about their condition. Next week, we will see there are people who believe they are Christians but are not. But these false prophets are under no such delusion. They know they are wolves. They are intentionally seeking to act like shepherds to come in and destroy the sheep. That's their purpose. That's their intent. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about it. They are seeking to deceive the sheep so that they'll be accepted for the purposes of destroying the very sheep that would accept them. And this is why this is why truth is paramount. This is why being able to rightly interpret the Bible individually and personally is vital. Because this warning is here, the question I have to ask today, to be intellectually honest, is how do you know I'm not a false prophet or a false teacher? Well, I'll give you some idea. I, he, I dress so nicely. I needed to fix my tie, didn't I? I meant to do that earlier. I dress so nicely. I've got a cross on my little, uh, my tie bar here. I have a nice pastor haircut, you know, 1950s, looks great. Uh, on on uh, weeks, days during the week, I wear khakis, and I tuck my shirt in. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm what a pastor is. I smile like a pastor. I shake hands like a pastor. I'm very friendly, very kind, very good looking, very talented. I don't smile as well as some pastors out there or have all the personality. But, you know, I'm, I look trustworthy, don't I? I sound nice. I'm friendly. Why wouldn't you trust me? I see some of you are struggling right now. You've been not trusting me for a long time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a question. How, how, how do you know that the person preaching to you, how would you know what a false prophet is? 
How about the Christian writer whose books you read, the Christian teacher or pastor whose podcast you listen to? How do you know if someone's a false prophet? How would you know? Would you know? This is, this is and if you say, well, now you're, you're kind of scaring me. Isn't that what the sign on the fence is supposed to do? Beware of dog. Why? So you don't get bitten. So you don't get hurt. So you're, you're cautious. You're careful. The warnings are there for a purpose. And that's what Jesus is doing. And I want to bring that warning with sufficient authority so you can hear it the way Jesus intends it. You should be scared. Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? Why were the Bereans, those who were living in Berea, were more noble than the Thessalonians? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There's two things that made the Bereans noble. They received the word of God with eagerness, but they didn't just soak up what Paul was preaching and teaching. They also examined the scriptures, and I think the word daily is it's really important to see if these things were so. They were listening to the preaching and they were studying the word of God and making sure that what is being preached that they eagerly received matched and came out directly from the scripture. And that's what you should do with every time you read, every time you listen to a sermon in person or anything you listen to online and read. You must search the scriptures daily to see if what is being taught to you is the word of God and true to scripture. That is the, why the preeminent foundation of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. That comes from the Latin meaning scripture alone. And the definition is this, scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith, which means this, scripture by itself is the only guide incapable of error telling us what to believe and how to live. Are there other rules of faith? Confessions of faith and, and, and teachings and writings and books from godly men. Of course, there are other things we learn from, but there's only one without error guide. It's the sole rule of faith and practice is the Scripture. Scripture alone fills that role. Not a pope, not a priest, not a pastor, not a teacher, not a book. None of those things. So what does this warning demand from us? It demands knowledge of the Word of God. How are you able to discern a wolf in sheep's clothing from a shepherd in sheep's clothing? Not by the clothing. And so how do we know these things? We must know the truth. We must be able to judge these things. We must have knowledge of the word of God. And we gain knowledge, such knowledge that we can recognize pastors and teachers when they're trying to deceive us. That's a, that's a deeper knowledge than most Christians have today. It takes more than one sermon a week, more than one Sunday school lesson a week. It takes regular, meaningful, even daily time in the scriptures. This warning is meant to motivate us, to give us just one more reason to be reading, studying, meditating, and memorizing God's word. It's a call for us, a repeated call in scripture, to bring us back to the basics. Back to the basics. And you guys have been here long enough to hear me pound this basic time and time and time again. Read your Bible. 
Read it regularly. Read it daily. Memorize it. Study it. Dig into it. Understand it. And, and, and still we struggle because as Christians, we're going to struggle. That's part of it. The other part of it is I don't know yet what it's going to take for us to take it seriously. My question here is what do we expect to happen if we don't dig into the Word of God? If we don't know the Word of God? If we're not reading instead, what do we expect to be the result of that? In light of this warning, what do we expect to be the result of that? We've talked about sheep before. I'm not here to pick on the sheep. We're all sheep. I'm a sheep. You're a sheep. Even though I'm a shepherd, I'm still a sheep. It's kind of weird, but that's what it is. I'm a Christian. But, but sheep are easily led astray. And sheep are open in, to, to being deceived and open to being destroyed by all kinds of predators. It's like we, we need to be the ninja sheep. You know, the sheep that can defend itself. We need to be, we need to be better than just the, the regular old sheep that just gets taken out. And, and, and reading the Bible is a basic function of our relationship with Christ. Now, I know, I know. It's interesting. Ask someone, do you read your Bible? Do you read your Bible regularly? Do you read it daily? No, I don't do that. Why not? It's just, sometimes it's amazing of how many people don't know why they don't. I mean, if you're not going to do something, you should at least, some, if you're not going to do something good for you, you should at least know why you don't do it. So why don't you exercise? Because I don't want to put in the work. All right, thanks. You at least understand the reason. I don't like to sweat. It's too hard. I'd rather do something else. Whatever the reason is, we should know those things. And so there are some reasons, and I want to talk just a minute about those reasons this morning. One of the primary reasons that people don't read the Bible is because they say, well, I don't get anything out of it. I can't understand it. I read it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. If you were going to school and the teacher assigned a reading assignment and you're going to be tested on that reading assignment and to pass the test on that reading assignment, uh, to graduate, you needed to pass the test and you went home and you read it, you didn't understand anything about it, what would you do? I have to know these things to pass the test, to pass the class, to graduate, I don't understand what it's saying. I guess I'll just close up the book and uh, forget about it. I don't understand it. Well, what's the result of that? Just work your way out of that. No, we would say, hey, I need to find somebody who will help me understand it. I need help. I need a tutor. I need someone to explain it. I need to work on it. I need to read it more. I need to read it more carefully. I need to get help. This, this is where we as Christians say, hey, you know, I tried reading the Bible one time 35 years ago. I tried for like a week. Didn't understand a thing and I haven't tried ever since. Really? That's just, we don't, this, this doesn't make sense. And it makes sense in the sense of not doing it, but it doesn't make sense in light of the necessity and the urgency and, and the reasons. So what would you do? Get help. Talk to somebody. Get a tutor. Get someone to read it with you. Get someone who understands more to explain it. Don't just say, I don't understand it. And then shut the book and never open it again and be dependent on pastors and teachers and not be able to discern the difference between false prophets and true prophets, false teachers and true teachers, and being at the mercy of someone else to explain it. Now, that's why pastors and elders are there. They are there to protect you from the false prophets and the false teachers. They're there to protect the sheep. 
But notice the warning here is not false sheep, but false shepherds. And so how does a shepherd protect you from a false shepherd? It becomes difficult. That's why the sheep have to be trained. And that's why it is assumed in this passage that the sheep can know them. The sheep can know false prophets. Because verse 18, um, my eyes are bad, verse 16 <laughs> says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will? Yes. Now, the warning is there is because you can be deceived. But the fact is you don't have to be deceived. You can have the ability to discern. You can know the Scripture individually so you can tell false prophets from true prophets. It's, it's possible. So find help. Find someone to do it with you. Encourage one another. Find a discipleship partner. Come to me. If you don't know how to read the Bible, if you don't know where to read in the Bible, if you want to be discipled, you want to learn and grow in this, don't just sit in frustration and struggle. Get help. Talk to me. I'll help you. I'll find someone who can help you. We are here to help one another on the very basics of the Christian life. This is vital to us in so many ways, and it comes up time and time and time again. We cannot be content with struggling or failing in this area. This is vital for us. And there are so many other reasons. Another reason people don't, they don't do it is I think there's wrong expectations. Here's the expectation of this. This is where it works. Pastor, I read the Bible and get anything out of it. Really, how much did you read it? Well, I read it once. I read eight chapters and don't remember a thing. Read, read the whole book and don't get a thing. I think we have a wrong expectation that good Christians, smart Christians, especially pastors, pick up the Bible read through something once, set it down, and go preach a 45-minute sermon. Do you know how many times I read the passage for today, this week? Probably 40 or 50 times, just these verses, just for this week. You say, well, it didn't change on the 30th time, did it? Don't you remember what it said? I'll memorize it many times. And still read it over and over and over because I'm trying to understand it. And it doesn't come the first time you read something. A lot of times it doesn't come the fifth time you read something. You have to read something multiple times, especially the Scripture, especially some parts of the Scripture. I think sometimes our frustration is we think I should just be able to read something once like it's an Agatha Christie novel and be able to understand it the next day. Like, read it, understand it. That's simple. No, the Bible's not that easy of a read. You have to read it repeatedly. You have to read it, you have to read it in small chunks. You have to read it over and over and over. So maybe your expectation is wrong. Work, work on these things. These things are vital to us. I could go on and on, and I have before, so I'll stop and be merciful at this moment. Let's move to point two. False prophets are recognized by their fruits, which is the key point of this entire passage. Twice it's mentioned. You will recognize them by your fruits. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So how can you tell a false prophet from a true minister? By their fruits. Now, I want to be clear here before I dig into what this means. No one can ever know with absolute certainty the spiritual state of any other individual. Did you hear me? No one, not me, not you, not Paul, not Peter, the apostles that is, can ever know with absolute certainty the spiritual state of any other individual. Yet, now listen carefully, that truth cannot be used to keep us from doing what Christ is teaching us to do. We can recognize false prophets. We can accurately discern who isn't a true pastor, who isn't a true apostle. We can. 
So you can't take one spiritual truth and use it to defeat another command in Scripture. The fact that we can't know with absolute certainty anyone's spiritual condition in their heart doesn't mean that we're not to discern their fruits. In fact, that's the command. The command is to do this, and therefore you will be able to understand. You'll be able to see them. You'll be able to understand and discern who they are. Disciples can discern false prophets. Christians can do this, and we must be doing this. Can we know someone's heart with absolute certainty? No. Does this mean that we don't do the work of discerning their spiritual condition? No. Just wait and see if you would jump in there. We must do the work of discernment. We must mark out false teachers. We must understand what is right and true and what is uh, biblical and unbiblical. But we must be careful to do it according to biblical parameters, not by our own perspective and our own position. The point is this. What you are determines what is produced. What you are determines what is produced. If you are a false prophet, you will produce a certain kind of fruit. If you are a true prophet, a true pastor, a true minister, you will produce a different kind of fruit. Simple, right? That's what it says. It repeats it in different ways. So what that means is you determine who someone is as you're looking at them starting from the outside in, in such a sense. We start with the fruit to determine the nature of the tree or the nature of the plant. We say, what does it produce? That's what it is. I wish we could just have everything determined. We could see someone's heart and we don't have to worry about being fruit inspectors, but that's not what we can do. And so the Bible says it's opposite. You look for fruit. Now, the point of the first illustration, do you get grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, is to teach us that some false prophets produce no fruit. Have you ever noticed out in the world that there are some plants that don't produce fruit? Right? You get that? Have you ever seen a thistle before? I looked it up to make sure I knew what a thistle was. What do thistles produce? They produce a flower. It's very pretty. They also produce some really prickly, pointy things all over it. What do thorn bushes produce? Thorns. They produce something. But neither one of them produce fruit. There is no fruit. But the opposite is, is if you decide to grab a hold of a thorn, a thorn bush or a thistle, you realize they produce something. It just isn't very pleasant. And that points to something true about false prophets. They do produce things. It's just not fruit. These, some false prophets have no fruit. Now, the question is, what is fruit? What should we be looking for? Well, some misuses of this passage do with this. Some people talk about fruit, and they use it generically, that if you are really serving God, you will have fruit in your ministry. Therefore, fruit is used as a metaphor for spiritual success, ministry success. If you are a good church, you'll see growth, you'll see new converts, you'll have spiritual fruit. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not how fruit is being used here. Some people also see fruit as like personal fulfillment. If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm the right kind of person, if the right things are being done, I'll be happy, I'll be joyful, I'll have peace, I'll be fulfilled. That's not what Jesus is saying here either. And another one that has become very pernicious in our day and age is some people say that if you are the right kind of pastor and teacher, that there will be the fruit of acceptance and approval for people. 
And if you ever preach a message that people don't like, they don't approve of, they feel like they're being pointed out as sinners and their behavior is being demonstrated as sinful, that's bad fruit and that points to a bad minister. So some people think fruit is you go to church, you always feel better about yourself. Your behavior becomes approved. Everything is good. You're fine the way you are. And people walking out feeling better about themselves, not under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sin, but feeling like whatever they might think could have been sin or some other pastors that was sin is really no problem at all. And this shows up in the LGBTQ+. If you don't know what those things are, talk to me later. Worldview of professing Christian, of false prophets who claim to be Christians and say that Christian ministers who have the fruit of guilt and conviction and people upset by their message have bad fruit, and that's how you judge their message. And therefore, we must preach a message of acceptance and approval for people who are homosexual or transgender, and that would give us good fruit of joy and peace and acceptance. That is not what Jesus is teaching either. That is an abuse of this passage. So what is fruit? Fruit are biblical categories that demonstrate the transformation of regeneration and conversion. Fruit here are biblical categories that demonstrate the transformation of regeneration and conversion. So one thing that good fruit is, good fruit is righteousness. Works that are pleasing to God and profitable to men. So it's not enough to lack wickedness. Well, I don't have any thorns. I don't have any thistles. I must be a good plant. No, do you have righteousness? Do you have positive fruit of biblical righteousness? So no fruit, and now some false prophets produce bad fruit. Bad fruit. And the point here is this. Healthy trees produce what kind of fruit? Good fruit, can they produce bad fruit if you're healthy? Nope. If you're a bad tree, what kind of fruit do you produce? Bad fruit, can you produce good fruit? Nope, you understand it, that's the concept. Well, what is this bad fruit? What is the bad fruit that would demonstrate that someone is a false prophet? Well, we have some tests. The first test is the prophetic test. The prophetic test. The prophetic test comes out of Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. So Deuteronomy 18, 20, and 22, the prophet comes, presumes to speak a word in my name, presumes to speak a word I have not commanded him to speak. They speak in the name of other gods. That same prophet shall die. Well, you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? How can we tell a false prophet from a true prophet? Very simple. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And more than not afraid of him, what should you do to him? You should kill him. Now, we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant. I am not telling you to go around and kill false prophets and false teachers today, though you might be tempted to do so. You shouldn't. But in our day and age, some of you remember false prophecies. The Jehovah's Witnesses of the Watchtower Bible Society have had numerous false prophecies of Christ's return. And they have failed, and they have failed, and they have failed. And yet many people, even when the prophecy proves to not come true, continue to remain as Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not the only cult that has a history of false prophecy. But that has also come true for many Christians. How many of you remember 88 reasons Jesus is going to return in 1988? 
Now, some of you weren't born before that, so you wouldn't remember it. Some of you remember, right? Did Jesus return in 1988 and we all missed it? What do we do with Christian pastors? Maybe men who are very solid in many things, who will come out with these prophetic announcements of something that's going to take place, and it doesn't. What should every person who follows those teachers and preachers do when that happens? Don't kill them. Don't take them out. Oh, kick them out. I like that. I thought you said take them out. I'm not sure about it. Leave them. Kick them out of the ministry. Don't follow them. Do not. It seems like such a simple test, but people violate this all the time. Someone comes up with some harebrained prophecy. It doesn't come true, and nobody blinks an eye. Like, okay, we'll try again. Roll the, anyway. Letter B, the, the convert test. The convert test. Who is following them, and what is the fruit in their lives? Now, this is specifically for false teachers and false churches. What kind of people follow those people? We also have the ethical test, which is probably exactly what Christ is pointing to here. There's two tests, and the last two are the ones that are probably being pointed to here by the bad fruit. The ethical test could also be called the character test. We watch their words and actions. Uh, You can look up Jeremiah 23, 9 through 15, and see it in the Old Testament as well as the New. Jeremiah 23, 9 to 15, the ethical test. What is their character like? Matthew Henry says it this way. If the doctrine be of God, it will tend to promote serious piety, humility, charity, holiness, and love with other Christian graces. But if, on the contrary, the doctrines that these prophets preach have a manifest tendency to make people proud, worldly, and contentious, to make them loose and careless in their conversations, unjust or uncharitable, factious or disturbers of the public peace, if it indulge carnal liberty and take people off from governing themselves and their families by the strict rules of the narrow way, we may conclude that this persuasion comes not of him that called us. What do their lives look like and what are the lives of those who follow them? What are the ethics? And so much of the false prophecy and false preaching and false teaching today is telling people that sin is not really sin, that things really aren't that bad, that the commands of the Old Testament especially are for another day or for another people. We don't need to follow them. And people are living more and more in wickedness and unrighteousness and feeling good about themselves, approved and accepted. That is the predominant false teaching of the day. And all kinds of pastors in our in our country, in our state, and in our own town and around the world are promoting the health and wealth prosperity gospel that doesn't have much of a problem with sin and promotes that Jesus is here just to make you happy and to meet your needs. Not so much your needs, but your wishes. And the ethical test that comes out of that is not more righteousness and more godliness, but more licentiousness, pride, wickedness. And then we also have the doctrinal test, which is what I pointed out earlier. The doctrinal test, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 6. You can look that up. Do their doctrines lead people to follow false gods? False theology, false doctrine. So what does John Calvin say in this passage? He says this, Let us remember, however, that all doctrines must be brought to the word of God as the standard, and that in judging of false prophets, the rule of faith holds the chief place. All doctrines must be brought to the word of God as the standard. 
The problem is we take someone's teaching and we take it to the Word of God and we do not have the spiritual discernment, the biblical knowledge to be able to discern. Even when we have the teaching and we have the Word of God, we can't do the work because we are biblically illiterate. And that becomes where we as congregations, we as a church, we as Christians in total are open to these things. Both Peter and Paul spend extensive time pointing out the actions and activities of false prophets. 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Peter 2, pointing out what false prophets look like, what they teach and how they live. So the warning is this, false prophets will face eternal judgment. That's the last part of this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. False prophets, these wolves in sheep's clothing, these bad trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's just talking about eternal judgment. Judgment comes at the end uh, in verse 14. It comes in, the, in verse 19. It's a repeated theme. Notice carefully about judgment and about fruit. Your fruit doesn't determine your destination. It reveals your destination. This is the truth of the gospel. Your fruit doesn't determine your destination. It reveals your destination. Please do not get the impression that the way that you enter the kingdom of heaven is by making sure that you are a good tree and therefore that you produce good fruit and you do all of this work in your own strength so that your good works, this good fruit that you're supposed to have, will earn your way into heaven. Your fruit doesn't determine, it reveals. You don't produce fruit so that you will be saved because having fruit doesn't save you. The idea there about the thorn bushes and the thistles is you can take some, some grapes and you can hang them from thorn bushes so that from a distance it might look like, a, like grapes. You get closer, you can tell, but the, the idea is you can, you can staple some fruit to the tree and it looks good for a while. So it's not, the point is not the fruit for getting into heaven. You don't produce fruit to earn your way in. You are a citizen of the kingdom, and therefore you produce fruit. There's no clearer passage than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why not works? So that no one may boast. You are saved by grace through faith and not of works. It couldn't be any simpler. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those who are truly saved, who know Christ, who've been born again by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone, will have good works. So if you want to test if you are a false prophet, look at your works. That shows who you are. Who you are determines what you produce. But your fruit doesn't determine, it reveals. So Jesus is greatly concerned with how you live, not as a means of earning new life or gaining new life on your own, but as a means of demonstrating the presence of new life. Not as a means of entering the kingdom, but a means of demonstrating that you have already entered the kingdom. This is a sermon for Christians, for disciples. It's not a sermon for those who are outside the kingdom, who are not followers of Christ, about how you get in. You get in by grace, through faith in Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, and you must trust in him alone, not in your works. 
And when you trust in Christ alone, you will be transformed, you will be saved, you will be converted, you will become a good tree, a good plant, and you will produce fruit. That's the way it works. You don't produce fruit to become a good tree to be saved. You're saved, you are a good tree, you produce fruit. And so what must we do? This warning passage is a warning for Christians, a warning for the disciples of Christ. And 1 John 4, 1 tells us what that warning is. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We must be on guard. We must take the warning seriously. It must drive us to the scripture, and we must learn and grow together and help one another. Don't walk out of here today ignorant of the Bible, illiterate of the scripture, struggling in your walk with God, and not get the help you need. We must help one another, encourage one another. We must be doing the basics of the Christian life so that we can heed Jesus' warning and not have false prophets steal the sheep from this flock. Steal us who are the sheep of this flock. And it happens, and it happens regularly, and we must be on guard. And this is how we determine who the false prophets are out there. Come back next week to help understand if you are in the kingdom whether you are a person who is saved and the test for yourself. So this is a test of looking out. Next week it's a test of looking in. Let's pray together.